Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Welcome to Forbes Podcasts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, a Forbes podcast produced by Fractal Recording. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a Forbes contributor covering blockchain, digital currencies, and fintech. Thanks for tuning in. Before we begin, I just wanted to give a quick thank you to those of you who have been rating and reviewing the show in iTunes. Every vote of confidence boosts the podcast rankings. And if you've been enjoying Unchained but haven't yet reviewed or rated it, I'd so appreciate it if you could take the time now. For today's episode, I'm speaking with Tyler and Cameron Winkleboss, who serve as Chief Executive Officer and President, respectively, of cryptocurrency exchange Gemini. They also run the private investment fund Winklevoss Capital, which has made a few cryptocurrency and blockchain investments, such as in Bitcoin Vault Zoppo and Bitcoin hardware and software firm 21. Back in 2013, they were the first to file with the Securities and Exchange Commission for a Bitcoin Exchange Traded Fund, or ETF, which they propose calling the Winklevoss Bitcoin Trust to be traded under the ticker symbol COIN. Unfortunately, for listeners eager to hear more about the the Bitcoin ETF, while COIN awaits SEC approval, Tyler and Cameron are not able to speak about it publicly, so we won't be able to address it in this podcast. However, for those interested, the most recent filings were made at the end of June, and it's entered a public comment period. Welcome to the show, Tyler and Cameron. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, so Tyler, why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, what you guys have been doing since the 2008 Olympics. I think most people may be aware of the trajectory of your careers before then, um, as chronicled in the movie, the social network, you were both tied up in the early development of Facebook, and you've also enjoyed careers as rowers on the U S Olympic team for listeners who last knew that you competed in the 2008 Olympics. What happened after that? And how did you end up in Bitcoin? So after 2008, we decided to continue to train. Um, but at the end of the day, we decided we actually wanted to get back into entrepreneurship. So we hung up our oars at, in about 2011. Um, during that period, we actually went to Oxford University and rode in the Oxford Cambridge boat race and also achieved our MBAs. Um, and then we decided we had been rowing for about um, 15 years at that point. And we could have kept going, but I think we, we always sort of saw rowing. It was a little bit of a detour. It's like one day when we were 15, walked into a boathouse, said, let's give this sport a try. And next thing we know, we were, um, on the, you know, made the junior national team. And then we said, Hey, maybe we can do this in college and, and, you know, became a refreshment at Harvard. And then all of a sudden, you know, four years later, we were national champions said, hey, maybe we should just keep doing this a little bit more. So rowing was one of those things. It wasn't like we walked into a boathouse uh, the first day and we're like, hey, we're going to be Olympians. It was it was each day, each year, let's try, let's go a little harder. I think we can go a little bit faster. Um, and next thing we know, we're, we're pretty much almost 30, and we'd been doing this for 15 years and had an incredible journey. As you said, we went to 2008 Olympics, um, were NCAA champions undefeated in college, uh, rode in the Oxford Cambridge boat race, and we decided we had we'd climbed this mountain enough, and we could have kept going, but we decided that you know now was a time to to climb another mountain. So we decided to the, we wanted to get back in entrepreneurship. Our dad's a serial entrepreneur. We had always grown up looking up to guys like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. Um, we didn't really grow up in a jock family in the traditional sense, in that you know we talked about we didn't talk about the Yankees at dinner time conversations. It was really talking about business and ideas. And my dad was always bringing home the newest computer and we were thinking about those kind of thoughts. So wanted to get back into that. And the most natural way to do that was as investors. So we set up Winklevoss Capital, a private investment firm in 2012, um, figured it's a great way to network with fellow investors, meet a lot of entrepreneurs, um, look at a lot of cool ideas and just get back into it. Um, during that year, actually, um, when we, when we set that up, we went on, on vacation in 2012 in the summer in, in Spain and Ibiza. And 
on vacation, we learned about Bitcoin. And so that's how that all started. And so we started. Um, well, how? How did that happen? So a mutual friend um, came up to us, introduced, in, introduced himself to us. Um, we realized we had mutual friends in common. He was from New York. Um, and, and then said, Hey, have you thought about, you know, digital currency or Bitcoin? We said, no, we're, we just pretty much retired from elite athletics and starting a, a investment firm. Um, and we're actually on vacation, not really looking for any, any, the, the next big thing, but obviously that's always how it works in life. It's very serendipitous. You don't, you don't predict when you're going to fall in love or, or you can't force that kind of thing. You just sometimes you set yourself up in the, in the right positions you're aware, but, um, oftentimes you, you stumble into it just like, you know, rowing was one of many sports we tried. And, you know, in a, in a way you sort of fall into it. You, you don't know you're going to be good at it. You don't know you're going to like it. You don't know you're going to want to do it for, for that long. And Bitcoin, like, like rowing and like a lot of things we, we've done happen serendipitously like that. And then I think, you know, love is probably a great, a great analog to to finding your passion. You can't you can't sort of will it or, or force it. But um, so we started learning about Bitcoin in the summer of uh, 2012 and buying it. And then next thing we know, it just sort of like sucked us in. You know, not even that slowly, but pretty quickly. Um, this was a pretty heady romance. But um, next thing you know, we're we're looking to um, you know be entrepreneurs in the space. And I think we always wanted to become go back and to be entrepreneurs at heart, but being investors was a good way to sort of test the waters and figure out what that idea would be. And then over time, um, we just, we, we identified the, the problem of, of, um, a licensed regulated exchange in America and decided this was the, this was the, the problem we were going to put our efforts into solving and, you know, return and, you know, put our entrepreneurs cap on and, and start building, something great. So that's, that started about two and a half years ago and we've been operational for about a year. Um, so right now we are both, we both invest, um, but at the same time, um, most of our time, um, is, is on, is, is building Gemini. So sorry if that was a a very long winded introduction, but that that is, that is sort of the, that takes us from basically, um, you know, 2012 to today. Okay. So, um, Cameron, as Tyler was mentioning, you, you know, you guys um, really fell in love with Bitcoin and have found that it's your passion. And I have noticed that through Winklevoss Capital, you've made a number of different investments. But what was it about this technology that captured your imagination? It's a great question. Um, I mean, there's so many different aspects to Bitcoin, I guess. I mean, it, there's sort of the technological protocol aspect. There's the um, economic aspect of uh, fixed supply borderless money. Um, I mean, we were both economics majors um, at Harvard, and I don't think we had truly thought about, you know, currencies beyond the fiat world um, until we came into Bitcoin. And it was a big eye opener that all of a sudden there's this huge, you know, alternative. It's almost like a finding a new color um, and thinking about all the different aspects of it. And we figured, you know, this is either probably a pretty binary outcome. It's either a zero or, you know, an enormous um, new opportunity. And the, the interesting thing about Bitcoin um, is that, you know, it, it's both disruptive from a technology standpoint, but there's a tremendous power of social good behind it. So you can both build a cool business or, or have a great investment return. And, um, you know, there's the promise of potentially um, improving the remittance industry or banking the unbanked. Um, we're not there yet with Bitcoin, but it's certainly a possibility. Whereas the existing sort of legacy banking system, it's not a possibility because if it was, it would have happened already. Um, these are technologies like ACH, Fed, Wire, Swift, um, debit cards, all those things have been around for, for many decades and they have not solved the problem. And we're, you know, if you, you step back, there's, there's, you know, upwards of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people that have um, no financial inclusion and there's no, um, 
you know, path to that with the current technology. So where Bitcoin is right now, I think, is that it's most being looked at and it, it's most being talked at in areas where it's potentially least impactful. Um, but that's generally probably most the story of most technologies is that you build all, you know, telecom and all these things, and then you basically export it to places that can leapfrog, you know, all of the the pain points that we went through to get there. And it's really transformative. And when you sort of think about the way money, the way everything else works in the, the digital age, and then the way money does it, money really falls short. And so as it happens, we learned about Bitcoin overseas and actually we had to um transfer additional funds for accommodation after we'd gotten there apparently you know not enough we didn't pay pay the the right amount didn't get there um up front and so when you're sort of sitting there and you're trying to get money in to europe from america you recognize that um you have a better chance of overnighting a box of checkbooks or traveler's checks or cash so you know from here to to london you can do that Overnight, if if it's uh, Friday and it's a bank holiday on Monday, it's not going to get there till Wednesday. So it might take five five or six days. I mean, more than um, the majority of a week for for money to get over there. And that's that's just not the way your email works. Your email doesn't. Imagine if your email worked on on bank hours and was open from nine to five Monday through Friday, and then on holidays not open. Some people might actually like that, right? That, yeah, we sort of we sort of joke that that, um, that might be a good thing, but um, for all of our sanity. But um, money is acting like pre-internet, um, and and many of the forms of money and payments were, as Cameron mentioned, were built um, by bankers before the internet existed. I mean, so they never contemplated the internet or how to work on that. So when we sort of when you sort of step back and you stop stop accepting like, oh, this is how money works. This is what I learned in an economics book. It, you sort of at some point it's it's a little bit embarrassing because you you're like sure. you just accepted so much of what it was around and because it was familiar, you you thought that that's the way things are done and and money's just this money's always been this um, this green piece of paper with a with a president's head on it and that's the way it is when we look in the when you start you know, peeling back the onion, looking back into it, you know, money can be anything. It can be ones and zeros as long as the system has a certain scarcity built in. And, um, and ones and zeros are great because they're built for the internet. It's internet money that, that can, um, work the same way as email, as, as efficiently, as frictionless and potentially as, um, as cheaply. So, and obviously 24 seven borderless. And, and then you start to say, Oh, wait, like, you know, this is the kind of, this is how it should always have been, or this is how it would have always been, except for this guy, Satoshi Nakamoto or guy gal group, um, hadn't figured out this breakthrough until 2009. So it really felt like, you know, this is, this is the future. Um, and we love the future. We love spotting it. We love being a part of it and trying to help build it. So I think that's why we, we got sucked in so quickly to it. Um, so I like how you describe kind of the long road, you know, about how it's most active now in kind of more developed countries, um, but that you see like how, you know, down the road, it could help the unbanked, it could help in remittances. Um, and you talked about how you identified this problem of like a regulated exchange. Um, mm -hmm. So why do you feel like that's the first step and, you know, what, what um, differentiates Gemini from its competitors? It's a great question. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, the U.S. has some of the strongest financial regulation and consumer protections in the world and for very good reason. And it's I think, you know, that because of that framework, we also have, you know, some of the most liquid, amazing markets in the world. Um, you, you know, try and imagine the world without the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or the Bass Exchange. Um, the equity markets wouldn't exist and the ability to fund public companies, which, you know, build these great products and then have capital to reinvest in themselves and the economy and all that stuff. Um, the starting point or the block of that is both, you know, in our opinion, regulated venues where people can actually buy and sell securities and then also regulation right, around to sort of those securities. To build that confidence that exists in U.S. equities markets, there's no market in the world like that. I don't care what country you're talking about. Every investor around the world wants to invest in U.S. markets. 
because they're regulated and they're licensed, they're trustworthy, they have confidence. If you take that away, the global economy will take a hit like nothing else. So we want to recreate that for Bitcoin. And what we saw for, for many years was that um, was trying to create something away, running away from that, sort of a race right. to the bottom, anti-regulation offshore. And while I think that's important, and early adopters will have no problem, and more risk appetite um, investors or technologists will have no problem interacting in that ecosystem, the majority of the world and the majority of the the biggest pockets and the people who can make the biggest change will. And so in order to get them in the game, which they're they're not even there today, you've got to build something, a gateway, a road, a bridge that's licensed, that speaks their language, that their chief risk officer, that their chief regulatory officer can get on board with. It's still going to be a hard sell. But um, when you start to do that, then all of a sudden you take this really cool idea that's isolated out here on an island and you connect it to the U.S. or the global mainstream main island, main island or mainland yeah. rather. <laughs> um, and then you then, you know, you have a huge situation where one hand washes the other. I mean, imagine, um, you know, gold is often, you know, Bitcoin is generally a lot of times referred to as like the digital gold. Well, Gold is is you know it's been a store of value for for um, a very long time, um, but imagine if you had trouble vaulting your gold, or if people didn't know that they were going to potentially lose their gold wherever they placed it, or how to buy it in a safe manner. Gold would not look like a very attractive store of value, and people would probably look for something else. And I mean, your gold in Venezuela. It, in a vault in Venezuela is much different than your gold in a vault in in the U.S. New York City right. or or mm-hmm. London for that matter. And so, in order to eat for in order for one of the most obvious use cases of Bitcoin, which is a store of value and borderless money, um, to work, we need to have safe, secure, regulated places to store these stores of value. Um, without that, we we can't even get the first building blocks. And so it's really exciting and fun to talk about the future of of all the great other use cases that Bitcoin can can do. But if we can't even secure it properly um, and people don't feel safe buying it or selling it and transacting and using it, then we can't get anywhere. So speaking of security, there's been a lot of news recently about a major hack of a Bitcoin exchange <clears throat> called Bitfinex. And I'm sure you've seen on the Reddit boards, everyone saying, oh, you know, this is decentralized money. Why are we creating these decentralized exchanges? Um, you know, I mean, it, it was a massive amount of money that was lost about, I think, 70 million at the time of of um, the hack. So, um, you know, when you look at kind of that uh, debate between a centralized exchange versus the power of this decentralized money. Um, how do you, you know, make the case that like that really this is Im- not only important, but then also that you can actually make it secure? Sure. Well, uh, I'll, I'll start first by saying we don't know all the facts of that particular incident, um, though I think we've got the general brushstrokes, broad brushstrokes there. And I think what's clear from that particular incident is that. Um, the majority, if not all, the funds were stored in hot wallets, which are inter- internet connected, and they're thereby accessible by potential outside um, attackers through the internet. Uh, I think the easy mitigation for that hack is um, storing a majority of your funds in cold storage, which is not internet connected. That's something that our vault design has had since since the beginning. We currently employ and a number of other Bitcoin exchanges. That idea of cold storage is actually um, not particularly new. Um, there's certainly going to be better implementations of it, but basically, in fact, it's older than, as far as I know, it's older than than multi-sig technology, which became right. popular after it. So it's actually one of the oldest yeah. um, best practices. Yeah, and, and one of the biggest probably issues confronting, I think, Bitcoin in some ways, at least in the security sector, is that what pe- people use terms in very loose manner. When people sometimes say multi-sig and then you sort of kick the tires or look under the hood, it's not really multi-sig. Or there's a single point of failure where it effectively nullified the multi-sig aspect of, mm-hmm. of it. 
And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people will throw out these terms like multi-sig, insurance, this or that. And it's, it's, there's no real substance beneath it in, in right. some cases. And if you have like, if you have a car, right? And you have, you have airbags, but no seatbelt. I'd rather have my seatbelt than, than, or, than just an airbag. And, or, and that's just not preventing you from, if you get into a head on Or you say you have seatbelts that, but you forget the fine print where, but they only work up to 30 miles an hour. And at 60, that seatbelt is, is as good as, you know, not being there. And so the way you solve for these problems is you have actually regulated into, into uh, companies where the regulators have gone in and made sure that you're doing what you say you're doing. And so if you're unregulated and you're offshore or you're in an environment where there's no requirements to that, you can basically say what you want and the consumer is no, no wiser or, or, you know, worse off. They don't know until, until it happens. And that's really, I think, one of the key points here is that, is that what we say and what we, we, you know, what we're doing, we're, we're saying not only to the consumer, but we're also saying it and having to uphold that to a regulator and getting checked and held accountable for that. Well, I have a question about, you know, the hot wallet versus cold storage sure. issue. Um, at, you know, at Bitfinex, I think it was like a very active exchange. As you know, I think it has like the highest volume or some of the highest volume. Sure. Um, so in that situation where people actively want to be trading it, um, then what's the solution, you know, in terms of hot versus cold? Sure. So just um, the hot versus cold is so basically you, you, as a custodian, as an exchange, you have you have you be, and if you're a fully funded exchange, you take customer deposits before allowing them to trade. Um, but once you've taken dep- custody of those deposits, it's up to the exchange or the custodian to determine what, how they want to actually hold their customer funds. Um, and there's no, you know, customer but, but funds. To the question more specifically is, and funds don't have to be in hot wallet in order for them to be traded. Cause all of these trades are happening off blockchain. These aren't mm. on blockchain trades. So the, right. it would be, it's a mistake to think that to have high volume, you would need a lot of funds in hot wallet because at the end of the day, all of these trades on Bitfinex, on Gemini, back to your question a few questions back, is that they're happening off blockchain. And we'd love to create a decentralized exchange, um, but we don't know how to do it. People don't know how to do it yet um, at the scale and the speed that's required for the players in the legacy financial world. So when you think about the speeds that are happening at NASDAQ or NICE, they're microseconds. That's not that's really, really fast. I don't know how many times you can probably a hundred times faster, if not more. Oh, maybe maybe a thousand times faster than the existing trading speed of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, even though it's it's not even it's like orders of magnitude and a microsecond. I don't know how many times it would require you to um, blink your eye in a second, but it's a lot. It's like more than is possible for a human being to do. So these are trades that are happening at, you know, let's call it like light, like the speed of light. And they happen in matching engines all over the world. And that's what the financial world speeds. That's what they're used to. That's the, the speed times. That's the, um, you know, that's, that's just the standard. And so to achieve that in trading Bitcoin, the only way you can do that is off blockchain and to do it in a centralized exchange. Um, there's, there's just no way um, we, you know, we see the block size debate and the arguments and about that. Bitcoin transactions take 10 minutes approximately and best practices is waiting for, for uh, six confirmations. So you can't wait 60 minutes when you're talking about dealing with, with uh, microseconds over here. And so 99.9% of all Bitcoin transactions actually don't happen on the blockchain. They're happening at exchanges. They're happening OTC. They're happening somewhere else. So the, the reality is it's just not feasible as we just, as we know it to build a decentralized exchange that's performant to the standard that it needs to be in order for market makers and financial players in FX markets, securities markets, treasury markets, whatever to actually interact with. Um, so we're stuck with centralized exchanges and back to what Cameron was saying is the implementation of multi-sig in, in cold storage is super important and they can be night and day. You can do it really well or 
really badly. Um, and when we think about, um, you know, cold, cold, not all cold, cold storage systems are created equal. And, um, you know, often comparing them to each other is like apples and oranges. And I think what we learned or what, what the Bitcoin um, ecosystem learned is that multi-sig alone is not, um, necessarily enough. And, um, multi-sig with cold storage is now you're, now you're starting to talk. Um, and, and I think we just saw, um, we saw sort of implementations maybe that weren't quite ideal and people, um, resting on, um, things yeah. that maybe they shouldn't. I also think that, you know, decentralized, if you hypothetically could build a decentralized exchange that was fast enough, um, and technologically there, it, it solves for maybe one problem, but not for other problems in the sense that that may pe- appeal to certain people who are okay, you know, taking custody of their own funds. But, you know, at least the existing financial system, most people want a custodian to hold their funds. They do not want to store or have the issue of storing their gold bars um, or cash under their mattress. And so, but there's certainly people who want to do that. Um, and there's people in Bitcoin today that would like to do that and solve for a certain hack attack vector that, you know, um, costs them money. But that doesn't really, you know, that, that probably creates another issue. I think centralized custodians that are regulated that, um, you know, have good best practices, controls and procedures in place. That's what every other market in the world looks like. I'm pretty sure Bitcoin's going to look like that too. It doesn't mean that Bitcoin itself will not be decentralized, just like gold is still borderless money. But when you, you know, you're not moving it around, you need a, you know, safe, secure custodian to hold it. Um, nobody would argue with that. Um, and so I think, you know, there's just, you know, fight it, you know, I think Bitcoin will look more and more in some ways like that, but it's never going to lose its true core, super, you know, um, hero power of, of being, you know, a decentralized borderless digital asset. Okay. Um, so one other thing that I was interested in is, um, you know, back, especially in 2015, a lot of, um, people in financial services were saying that what is truly revolutionary, um, is not necessarily Bitcoin, but blockchain. Um, and yet, you know, you guys have stayed more focused on the currency or aspect, asset aspect of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Why? I, I think that, um, well, so, right. So there's been a lot of, um, you know, um, buzz around the blockchain or it's, it's not about Bitcoin. It's about the blockchain. Um, we feel by definition, a true blockchain is like immutable, um, irreversible, decentralized, um, and, and open source and that the world can build upon, um, in a permissionless fashion, similar to how, um, the three of us can go and we can go build a website on the internet. We don't have to ask anybody for permission to, to go do that. Um, and we can do that and it's truly open source. Um, we think that's the beauty and the strongest thing about actual Bitcoin and the blockchain. The blockchain is just one piece of Bitcoin. It's the open public ledger. But Bitcoin, the open source decentralized nature of that, that is, that is the strongest pillar of it. Um, so taking one piece of it, sure. But, um, I think a lot of technologists would, would argue that the same sort of things that can be achieved through private blockchains, which is what most of the discussion has been around, um, can be achieved with a distributed database and that technology has been around for, for decades. So we, we, we've just been sort of focused on Bitcoin because we think that it's truly a, you know, it's something different. It's innovative. It's, uh, when you, when you separate the blockchain from Bitcoin, I think you're talking more about distributed database problems. And, and while certainly interesting and without a doubt, there's certainly financial institutions and in other areas where they can improve that technology, but they can probably improve it with existing technology. They probably could have improved it a long time ago. It's just that they needed a bit of a kick in the pants from things like Bitcoin to say, oh, wait, we've got to get our tech game, you know, a little bit more in point here. It's, it should be maybe a little bit less back office and maybe a little more front office. Maybe, maybe we're not so much a bank anymore, but we're a bank and we're growing into a technology company or we want to be cutting edge because we have to talk to consumers that are, are, you know, the millennials. millennials and the people coming up that are doing bank through mobile apps and things like that. I mean, if I think of like the town where we grew up in all of the major, the, the, the stores, like the toy stores and things like that, they're banks. 
and their banks and their branches because they're catering to a population that still comes in and likes to do banking. And I think banks were fixated on this aging population for a long time, um, completely like sort of trying to figure out how to reach the millennials, the younger kids and things like that. So I think, look, if Bitcoin has made their story and how they offer banking services better, that's great. Um, but I think that it's that is a different I, we don't view that as competitive. It's, it's, it's sort of it's sort of we make the comparison. Okay, AOL and CompuServe are they are a closed internet system. Um, we're focused on the internet, and it's sort of a head scratcher when people are talking about oh the blockchains the innovation because on its own it we don't feel like it's anything new and we don't we feel like it's the, these solutions have been there for a quarter century. Um, when you start tokenizing a protocol and you talk about an open blockchain, now that's something completely new. That is a new color. That is something that um, a lot of people thought was was impossible to do. And so, as as Cameron mentioned, uh, you know, I think it's it's great. Banks need to improve their technology. We can tell you this firsthand, dealing with a lot of them. Um, and and T plus three, unless it's, I mean, there's no reason it can't be T zero. Um, you know, your stock can settle immediately. You should be able to go to the ATM. Oh, and just and, to, sorry to interrupt, but um, when you're when you're actually doing a stock trade, let's say on your E-Trade account, the trade says, oh, you know, you just bought your share of Apple. You think it shows you in real time. Yes. It's actually taking three days on the back end for that share to truly, you know, transfer. To clear and for the money to hit your brokerage account. So, so all of these sort of, a lot of these things, they appear real time and in reality, they're anything but. And, and I think, you know, that gap will be closed and continue to be closed and probably could have been for a long time. It could have been closed 30 years ago. Um, and, and whether or not it closes because, um, you know, traders like, um, delayed settlement or whatnot that, you know, it, it shouldn't be, um, it should be a choice. It shouldn't be, um, oh, that's the way, that's the best we can do. Um, and so I think Bitcoin um, opened a lot of um, people's eyes up to the fact that something can settle immediately. Um, but we're really focused, as Cameron was mentioning, on the open blockchains, whether it's Ethereum, whether it's Bitcoin, uh, open blockchains, open protocols, similar to the internet, you can... We can all go away and build a company and, you know, harness uh, TCP IP and internet protocols and, and things without anyone's permission, without the permission of a company. Um, we're not going to go down to, um, it's much harder to go to JP Morgan, Merrill Lynch and say, Hey, I want to build a startup on top of your bank chain and what you guys are doing. And, uh, if it goes really well in a year or two, promise you won't pull the rug out from underneath me and, you know, shut the API off. You don't need to worry about that um, when you're when you're building on open blockchains, and so we're much more focused on that internet side of things and the tokens, and that's what Gemini facilitates. We see ourselves as an infrastructure company, sort of like a picks and shovels um, type company. We're, we're a platform. We don't take a you know a position on a notional position on Bitcoin or or Ether or what, what directions it's going to go. We just want to help facilitate people to trade it. Um, buy and sell it in a in a licensed and safe manner, and I think that the idea of like you know the blockchain tech stuff and the post trade settlement um, and the bank chains that's great, but it's it couldn't be more different. Um, and you might as well not even have them in the same same conversation because um, <laughs> they're just so unrelated. Um, and so connect those dots for me um, between. Uh, kind of like what you're doing with the exchange and then, um, you know, what you, the value that you see in open blockchains. Like, um, if you want to give people a place to, to trade this money, uh, or a form of money, um, what, how is that going to facilitate these other things happening on these open blockchains? Sure. So sort of going back to maybe one of my earlier points is that in order for, you know, if people can't, um, buy and sell tokens of, let's say, Bitcoin or Ether or some other, you know, new digital asset and protocol that they want to build on top of and use. If you can't find a safe and secure place to buy and sell and store that, then it's pretty. It's really hard to build application layers on top of infrastructure that that is falling over or getting hacked or 
um, untrustworthy. And so basically, um, we think that, you know, that that infrastructure layer is the sort of the, the, the core building block. And that will hopefully facilitate um, developers um, to do all, all sorts of things and build all kinds of use cases and applications that, you know, we're, we can't even contemplate today that that will be around in the future. And on your exchange, are you seeing um, kind of more like traditional Wall Street traders and, and investors coming and, and wanting to trade there? Yeah, we see. So we see a combination of a lot of different participants. There's there's everything from a individual user that is interested in Bitcoin, wants to learn more and, and you know, wants to, to buy their first Bitcoin. Um, and then you have, um, you know, more sort of uh, long-term investors or people who um, might have been in Bitcoin early um, or people who want to take big positions today in Bitcoin that haven't been in it but want to sort of start getting into it. Um, and then we see uh, market makers that are Bitcoin centric, people who maybe came out of traditional finance and have been focused on making markets in Bitcoin, um, generally, you know, smaller two to five person shops. Um, and then we do have um, a number of existing um, financial institutions that are sort of, you know, tiptoeing into Bitcoin and saying, what is this all about? How do we figure it out? And, and we'd like to trade and take on positions and things like that. So the spectrum is that it's quite diverse. Um, and we have, um, you know, I'd say like a, a wide range of participants. We, we definitely do see the, the blue chip Wall Street types uh, starting to come in. And um, they're not easy to get involved. They ask a lot of questions. They do the due diligence. And it's it's hard, you know, um, but we've built a great product that that they can get comfortable with. Um, and I think that's in the in the long run going to be our differentiator is that we can we can get through that um, difficult conversation. We have great answers to the questions on our security story, our licensing, um, our right re- regulatory um, you know posture. And so um, that's happening. And, you know, our. Our goal is to make that continue to happen, but these companies are not looking to do business offshore. They're not going to wire their money overseas, and they may not even be able to. And so, um, you know, that's we're building for those that customer base. But like Cameron said, we we can point to examples of just about any type of customer on our exchange, from you know young to old to you know financially savvy to hey i just getting involved so we, we catered it to pretty much everyone yeah i mean it, we, we we specifically say that you know we're building an exchange for individuals and institutions um we care about both both you know both types of participants um and we're building tools that you know the the institutional trader who makes markets or trades in equities or currencies around the world um, you know, feels um, that has the power that they're used to. Um, but we're also, we spent a lot of time building out our interface and the product side of, of Gemini um, for people who, um, you know, I'll say for lack of a better cliche, like my mom can sign up and and buy her first Bitcoin. It's super clean, intuitive, and easy. That was the, the whole goal, I think, far too much with technology, fintech companies, or, or at least traditional fintech, um, if you look at like a Bloomberg terminal or or some of the brokerage platforms or softwares, they're very terminal esque and wonky looking, and and they sort of make your head spin. And you know that might appeal to a certain type of kind of look like the trader. surfing the internet in 1995. Yeah, what we sort of <laughs> joke about. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, so, do you feel like the trends that we've been seeing with Bitcoin will generally apply to other cryptocurrencies? I feel like I've seen um, quotes, you know, in other interviews where you talk about how you feel like there's going to be a future of multiple digital assets. We, we do think so, um, and, and that's you know we've spent a lot of time obviously talking about Bitcoin um, right now, but we do believe. I mean, we've built our custody system, our vaulting system. Um, is built so that um, anything that uses like an elliptic curve algorithm um, we can store. So when we when we added Ether in in I believe early May um, and and started supporting that trading, uh, it was it was a, a pretty minor change in our custody system, which uh, involves our custody system. We have what's called hardware security modules, HSM computers that store the private keys. Um, and they're tamper-proof and tamper-resistant. They basically are built so that you can't extract the private key. 
and we use those um, geo-distributed and, and located all around the country um, in a multi-sig configuration to store our Bitcoin. And when we looked at Ether um, and it started to develop and, and look really interesting and viable to support, um, it was actually a pretty straightforward upgrade to just our existing. It, it'd almost be like putting a new application on your on your MacBook or something, as opposed to building an entirely new MacBook. Um, and and one Mac, you know, two computers. No, like this is a desktop. We just put another application on it. And we've been building our custody system for two plus years, and and we I fully anticipate there being sort of more you know more digital assets that will come in the future. Um, I mean, we ourselves are invested in 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 one particular company called Filecoin, which is um, building basically. Um, uh, it's not obviously it hasn't been released yet. But basically, miners are rewarded for contributing storage to the network, and so it becomes a cloud sort of storage, almost like a cloud, like a AWS distributed, distributed AWS. Yeah, um, a decentralized Dropbox. Exactly. Um, so I don't think I mean any. You know, you can totally see the utility there. It's not something Bitcoin can do or will do. Um, and so that would be awesome if there's a distributed Dropbox out there. If there's a token for that, we would love to store it, support it, and allow people to trade it. We're also seeing this with with companies themselves. I haven't spent a lot of time looking at um, Steemit, but an example of a company that's actually issuing their own token, um, and that may or may, may not be a security, which is an interesting legal question. But it's not just... Um, people building protocols for certain utilities, but people are taking a protocol approach to their companies and basically issuing uh, tokens, um, just like a share, a, a stock share. And so I think, you know, the zooming out um, without getting too in the weeds, uh, cryptographic tokens are, seem to me like the future. It seems to me like um, all sorts of assets will trade via cryptographic tokens, whether that's me sending you a token that represents the keys to my car after you've paid me in Bitcoin for it, or a TV, or you sent your the Internet of Things and your devices are interacting with each other um, via cryptographic token transactions to provide or buy or sell services. That, to me, seems like the future. Assets will live on blockchains and be transferred from person to person, machine to machine, or machine to person via cryptographic tokens. And that is the future that we're building towards with Gemini. Um, and I think it's going to be a pretty exciting one. Well, so this is actually a big topic uh, um, in uh, of discussion amongst, you know, a lot of people in this space. And um I happened to be at this meetup last night and there was a debate about, you know, whether these are securities, whether they will be regulated, whether the SEC will put a stop to them. And then some people were saying, oh, you know, it doesn't make sense for most companies. It's just a, a way for people to try to make a lot of money. Um, and then there were others that were like, no, like, you know, you really need one of these tokens. And in, in, depending on the, the way that the um, network is set up, you you could really need that in order to make the, you know, this file coin or whatever function the way that you want it to function. Um, so I feel like there is a wide variety of opinions mm -hmm. right now on this. Like, do you feel like this is, I mean, it sounds like you don't think it's a fad, but then in that, uh, in that case, when does it make sense? When does it not? And when, and, and in what instances can we see this flourish where mm -hmm. it's not going to be shut down by the SEC? Well, I think that, um, it's a great question. Um, you know, if, if something is more than a fad and it becomes just the way the world's moving at some point, regulators have to, you know, accept that. And adapt to that. Um, obviously, you know, the SEC is some of the brightest um, regulators we have, so I, I'm confident that they will that they will evolve and, and understand you know their mandate, which is which is um, to protect the consumer. And and certainly these tokens are a super exciting idea, the cryptographic tokens that, that represent ownership of a company, but they can also be really misused. Poorly, and and a lot of people could lose could lose money with them. So, um, the, just like we have regulated financial markets um, to protect the average Joe investor from getting swindled by boiler room type um, 
you know, charlatans. Um, we're going to need the same type of guardrails, whether or not this is considered a security or not. And so I think that, um, you know, time will sort of play out. And I think the demand of, of how the world, you know, the paradigm shift, if it happens, then, um, it should be interesting. But at the same time, you know, the internet wasn't always open, right? Wasn't it a project that was basically, uh, military or quasi military or government controlled and developed and then slowly released out? And then it's, it's regulated in some areas, but it's constantly evolving. Um, I think that these tokens, you know, very much may be the future. Um, but I'm very, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an optimist at the end of the day with regards to, regulation catching up and and um and sort of technology finding the right path that that makes things more efficient but it is a really fascinating idea when you look at um you know your phone and this idea that you could have all these tokens on it to represent you know your share of apple your bitcoin which is we think is you know will be your future version of gold is your future version of gold but will disrupt gold um, and you know, I'm, I'm looking, the, the listeners can't see that, but I have my iPhone and my leather wallet on the table right now. And I think that the leather wallet doesn't exist, um, with, with plastic credit cards in it. I, I don't have looking at it right now. I don't have any cash in it. So cash is getting, you know, is starting to go the way of the dodo in, in my life. And I think it's just a matter of time before, credit cards and this nice leather wallet is is gone too and i'm just carrying my personal computing device smartphone with um all my you know assets on it whether it's the keys to my car and i just walk up to my car and it opens because it handshakes with my phone and and knows that the cryptographic um handshake that's happening is is me i walk to my house the same thing happens um, I want to sell you a share of my stock. I can, you know, send it to you like an email and we can make some sort of exchange. So that's sort of the way I see the future in the long run. Um, I'm sure there will be a lot of interesting, um, you know, ups and downs and, and, and learning, learning, um, you know, tales along the way, but that's kind of the way I see it inevitably going. Yeah, and just to be clear, I think Bitcoin, the CFTC um, in September of 2015 declared it um, basically a, an exempt commodity, um, similar to like gold. And so I don't think that there's much of a question at this point as to the characterization of things like Bitcoin. Um, but but when we're talking about tokens that are not that are centrally issued and things like that, they tend to fall a little bit more into the securities. Um, side of the field and there's there's specific there's a there's a howie test and there's like i think three or four points that you can go through and see you know something fits more into a security and in those cases you know it is it's going to be a very interesting question of um how do we characterize these things are they securities or do we you know does the regulation evolve somehow is there some sort of safe haven um uh area or, or market cap that that you can experiment in that's that's yeah. that's sort of cordoned off is there um kind of like the jobs act for small companies or startups is there um some certain amount of money that you can or filing you can do that's not super onerous like filing an you know an s1 statement right. to, to to make an ipo um you know how does that evolve but but certainly that's yeah all i know i mean i was i was uh, flipping through the channels in between the olympics on on I think saturday or sunday and did um catch a bit of the wolf of wall street and i was sort of cringing and saying thank goodness for financial regulation um in so you know you, you, it is a tough it is a tough balance and i think that uh as Tyler mentioned we have tremendous forward thinking regulators um in the u.s at the sec at the new york department of financial services and that's that's a big part of why we built gemini in new york um, because the regulation was clear and under superintendent Lossky, they they really blazed the, the trail there and so to build a company um and to get a banking relationship you you know no bank was really going to bank something that was uncertain and so having the ability to be regulated and licenses was a huge deal um but yeah, I think it'll be an exciting future to see where all this goes. 
Well, this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much. Where can our listeners find more of your work or contact you in the future? So we have a, so winklevosscapital.com is the website for a private investment firm. Um, our portfolio is listed there. Uh, we blog on that uh, website. We also um, are on Twitter. Um, so I'm at Tyler Winklevoss. Just the spelling of my full name. Cameron is at Winklevoss. The reason he's not at Cameron Winklevoss, people think he won a bet, but the truth is his his actually full name won't fit on Twitter handles. It's it's yeah. it's too long. I think it's seventeen uh, characters, and Twitter has a limit of fifteen. So you can find us on Twitter um, to, at Tyler Winklevoss at Winklevoss on Instagram at Tyler Winklevoss at Winklevoss, and then we're on AngelList uh, WinklevossCapital.com. It, we blog. It's our uh, investment company website. And of course, uh, last but not least, Gemini.com is our uh, digital asset exchange. You can buy and sell Ether and Bitcoin. Um, and there's also uh, email on both McClosscapital.com and Gemini.com. There are there are email addresses um, for inquiries that, that uh, you can find. So it's pretty easy to uh, find some sort of channel into us. It's more about, you know, what do you have to say? <laughs> and what's the content? Um, uh, depending on whether uh, we have the time to, to get back. But also, you know, just lastly, um, you know, getting in the ecosystem, you know, getting into the Bitcoin ecosystem or getting into the startup ecosystem is step number one. Um, you know, just cold calling someone um, seems like you haven't done your your work, you know, b- beforehand. Um you should be able to get to us. You should know an entrepreneur. That we've invested in 50 portfolio companies in Silicon Valley, New York, and L.A. Um, and each one of those companies has a lot of employees. And those employees have friends. And so it's not – when you start bringing out the, the social network rings, um, it's not too many hops to get to us if you're actually in the startup world. And so um, generally speaking, going through a friend who can vouch for you – that um, that we sort of, that we know or we respect somehow in our interaction is always the best way to get to, to anyone, whether it's startups or hey, I want to become an actor, or I want to become an athlete. Well, you know, get get into the the system, get into get around athletes and start going to regattas, start start hanging out, you know, uh, and 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 you sort or, of or meetups. You mentioned you were at a meetup last night, right? Um, we we were at YC Demo Day yesterday and. You know, a number of entrepreneurs um, who were presenting came up, said hello, you know, business card. Hey, what are you working on? Things like that. So we're around and, and you know, um, and there's there's so many. That's the cool thing about Bitcoin and technology in general is that people are very giving of their time and, and want to be inclusive. And, and everybody remembers when they first sort of got in. So when they see people that want to learn and want to get in, um, they generally return they the favor. Back, yeah. yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks for having us. It was fun. Thanks for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about Tyler and Cameron, check out the show notes, which are available on my Forbes page, forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. And if you like what you've been hearing, please review, rate, and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Every rating and review helps boost the podcast rankings. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.